It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Robert Polly. Today, you can't handle the truth. How we the people don't let the facts get in the way of our political biases. Brendan Nyhan studies the relationship between information and political perceptions, and he's got some disturbing news. His research seems to show that we like our myths better than reality, truthiness more than truth. We'll hear about some experimental evidence that shows just how wrong-headed we can be. And then in the second half of the show, what a difference a year makes. In 2009, I talked to Wall Street Journal reporter Robert Frank about the impact of the economic crisis on wealth in America. Well, I checked back in with him recently, and he says something very surprising has happened. That's all coming up. Don't go away. Okay, part one of our show. You know the old expression, a lie goes round the world while the truth is still putting its boots on? Well, political scientist Brendan Nyhan says it's even worse than that. Even after the truth has laced up its best steel-toed Doc Martens, a good lie will kick its butt much of the time. Nyhan is a political scientist who's been examining how people react when their political perceptions are contradicted by the facts. And he says they not only fail to revise their assumptions... In many cases, they double down on them. If you're a believer in the cleansing power of information, get ready to feel dirty. Or if Brendan Nyhan's research is correct, maybe you'll just go on believing what you want to believe, and none of what we say will have any effect whatsoever. Anyway, for what it's worth, here's the evidence. A couple of years ago, you and uh, another uh, political scientist, um, Jason Reifler, Mm -hmm. uh, did a study and I'd like you to just tell me what it involved. Well, what we wanted to do was to test whether uh, the media could correct misperceptions that are out there about politics, whether uh, reporters could help people understand when things they believed aren't true. And so what we decided to do was conduct some experiments with undergraduates uh, to, test, to test that idea. Mm-hmm. And, and how did you test that idea? Well, what we did is we gave people uh, mock news articles about topics that there were prominent misperceptions uh, out there at the time. And what we did in the experiment was some people just got a a news article that included a misleading quote, and other people got an article that was otherwise identical, except that after the misleading quote, they also received a statement saying, actually, uh, you know, this statement isn't true, and here's why. So so in some cases, the... um the misinformation was left uncorrected. In other cases, it was actually corrected in the article. That's right. What, what sort of uh, information are we talking about? Well, the first, the first study we did looked at the, the misperception that uh, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction uh, immediately before the U.S. invasion in 2003, which was a widespread misperception at the time and, and persisted actually for years afterwards. But by the time you did this study, uh, no weapons had been found uh, a couple of years after the invasion. Uh, and so people had seen no evidence that that was ever true. That's right. Um, so you showed these undergraduates articles that, in one case, claimed that, that there were weapons of mass destruction? So what they received was actually a statement from President Bush, in which he didn't quite say there were weapons of mass destruction at the time, but he suggested it. 
Um, it was it was the kind of suggestive rhetoric that the Bush administration used in the aftermath of the war. Um, that if you held the misperception, might reinforce it, and even if you weren't sure, uh, might create one. So uh, what we wanted to do was to test the contrast between that that sort of a statement and uh, an article where people got a correction after after uh, reading that statement. Okay, and what happened? What'd you find? Well, what we found is really depressing. Um, the people who uh, received the correction, um, the, the way they responded really depended on, on where they stood politically. Uh, so the correction was effective for liberals. Um, but when we get to the group that was most likely to hold the misperception, which in this case was conservatives, um, what actually happened was that they became more likely to report believing that uh, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction before the U.S. invasion. So in other words, the correction made the misperception worse. What was the correction specifically? How how did it correct the claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? Um, Well, I'd be happy to read you the quote, but uh, basically what it told them was that the the Dwelfer report, which was a report commissioned by the, I believe by the CIA, um, had concluded that there were no uh, weapons of mass destruction and, you know, that this was the you know, the, the conclusion after the war by the experts who had studied the issue and gone into Iraq and tried to figure out what happened. So you're saying that in, in this particular case, um, when students who had a conservative lean read an article that said, in fact, no weapons of mass destruction have been found and a detailed report uh, shows that there's no evidence of it, they actually hardened their belief that, that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? That's right. So compared to people who didn't receive the correction, who were conservative, they were more likely to say that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Um, so that's a, that's a very depressing finding. Yeah, I was going to use that word depressing. I'm glad you used it for me. It's, it's actually shocking. I mean, in, in the imaginary world of rational actors that a lot of us sometimes think applies you know, to us, we not only correct our perceptions based on new information, but in no case do we actually sort of dig our heels in and attach ourselves more firmly to something once it's been discounted or dispelled. Yeah, and in, in fact, you know, after we, after we got this finding, we went and, and looked around in the, in the literature in psychology and political science. We actually found several other sorts of examples uh, like this. And, and I think what it, what it suggests, you know, is that people don't uh, process information in the, in the way that that rational actor sort of model might suggest. Um, we have strong beliefs, and we filter the information we receive through those, and that can prevent us from listening to things that we should listen to that make us uncomfortable. And in some cases, actually, it can make us, uh, you know, even more wrong in our beliefs about things that we care about. How much should we generalize from this one study, though? I mean, defend the idea that this one study of students in this one particular case, weapons of mass destruction, which obviously is an ideologically charged subject. People got invested in that, you know, in that belief. A whole war was fought on that basis. Is, that, is it fair to extend that to, to the way we think in general? Well, I guess I would say there are two reasons that, that, that we think that there's something to this. The first is that we did another round of experiments after that finding uh, for precisely this reason, to try to see if we could show similar sorts of effects for a number of different issues, and also to see, um, you know, try to get a better sense of, of what was going on, how people were responding to the correction. And we uh, ran another set of experiments, and we actually found a similar backfire effect for um, the claim that tax cuts increase government revenue uh, 
among conservatives. But I also want to, to point out that we're not targeting conservatives here in any way. We think this is a, a, a human problem in the way we process information. And in fact, we, we tested a liberal misperception uh, that President Bush had banned stem cell research. And while we didn't get a backfire effect, we did find that the liberals who were most likely to hold that misperception did not move in response to the correction. Mm-hmm. Again, was this the same methodology? Did you present people with articles that either included or didn't include a correction? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same setup. Did you sound out these people who, who, who actually saw a piece of information that refuted their beliefs and who stuck to their beliefs or even stiffened their commitment to their beliefs? Did you ever talk to them and ask them why? <laughs> no, and in fact, we're, we're going to be doing more of that. Um, this was administered uh, through uh, an online survey that these students took. So we didn't have the opportunity to, to speak with them directly about how they were processing the information. The other thing that's, that's tricky about this is sometimes we don't even know why we do the things we do. Right? So you can ask people, why did you do that? And often they can't actually tell you accurately. They can, they can give you some sort of a, a rationalization after the fact, but it may not actually be the reason that they did what they did. Of course, there's a, there's a large body of psychological uh, experimental work that shows how we dumb humans really don't know what we're doing half the time. Uh, cognitive studies that show how we miss things because of our sort of bias going into a situation. The famous um, gorilla and the ball uh, video, mm-hmm. which everybody I think or most people are familiar with. You know the one I'm talking about, right? I do. Yeah, this is a very famous illustration. You can find it on YouTube um, where uh, you have a group of people uh, or two groups of people, one dressed in white, one dressed in black. They're tossing balls around and you're supposed to focus on the ball, keep your eye on the ball and count the number of times the, the team in the white passes the ball. And while you're concentrating on that, you completely miss the fact, even though it's as plain as can be, that a guy in a gorilla suit walks through the scene, stands there in the middle of it, uh, and, uh, and then walks away. And, and people, again and again, watching this scene, don't see the gorilla when they focus on the ball. Uh, that is meant to say that when we are, um, you know, we are very selective in, in, what, in what we see and what we, what we learn. That's right, and, I, and that was the second reason I was going to say that I, I, I feel like we can have some confidence in the larger conclusions of the article is that it, it is consistent with this, uh, what we know about human information processing more generally, which is that, uh, you know, not just do we have problems with processing information, but we're, we're selective both in the information that we seek out and the information that we choose to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and our study is really focused on the latter, so if, you, if information is put in front of you, um, you know, which information do you accept and which information do you reject? And, and what we find is your prior beliefs play a big role in that. Hmm. Who'd have thought? You've done another study uh, on, on misinformation, uh, and this is um, being reported in a new article that, you, that you're publishing online. It's called Why the Death Panel Myth Wouldn't Die, Misinformation in the Healthcare Deb- Reform Debate. Tell me about that study. Well, the idea for this study was to take a look at how misinformation plays out in practice, in a, in a, in a real-life setting. So go, moving from the experimental world of the study we just talked about into the world of, of real politics. And, and what I did was I, I took a look at two cases where misinformation played a big role in a, in, in a similar debate. One was the, the Clinton health care reform debate of 93-94, and one was the Obama health care reform debate of 2009-2010. Um, and in each case, there was a misperception that played a big role um, in the debate, and so what I do is, is talk about that and, and kind of 
see what sort of lessons we can learn from um, from considering these two experiences. Remind us of what the uh, the misperception was in the case of um, the the Clinton era debate, and then uh, and then again remind us what the uh, the death panel canard was. Yeah. So so in the in the case of the the Clinton debate, uh, there was a claim out there that if the Clinton plan was passed, you would uh, lose the ability to choose your own doctor, mm-hmm. um, which is a, was a scary thing to people, especially because this is before managed care um, had become such a big part of the American health care system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were the, the Clinton plan certainly would have made changes, and it would have affected, you know, the extent of the choice you might have over plans and doctors and things like that. But... There was there was no way in, that it was taking away your choice of doctor, and in particular, some people suggested you literally would not be able to pay using your own money to hire a doctor outside of the, the Clinton uh, plans framework, which was absolutely not true. And, and it went further, if I recall, to say that um, if a doctor were to take money for working outside the, the the network, in that sense, they could go to jail. That's right. That's right. It's absolutely not true, and it was. It got very wide circulation, and many observers believe it played an important role in, in damaging that plan and ultimately killing it. And then there was the death panel idea this last year. That's right. That's right. Um, which is, is, was a, is a term coined by Sarah Palin, but it actually goes back to um, some claims made by a woman named Betsy McCoy, who actually was the creator of the, or at least one of the, the founding mothers, I guess you would say, of the of the Clinton myth, she also played an important role in the in the Obama health care debate, um, pushing the idea that uh, a provision in one of the bills in Congress, which would have provided Medicare funding for voluntary counseling uh, about end-of-life options, um, was actually a, a, a stealth provision that would foist euthanasia on America's seniors. Mm-hmm. Um, so she put that out there in... Uh, summer of 2009, and it circulated and metastasized and eventually was reborn in Sarah Palin's claim about death panels, which people later try to uh, attribute other, other justifications for that term other than the, 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 the so-called euthanasia claim, but that was the original basis for it. Mm-hmm. And what, what did you find out in the this, in this study of these two myths? Well, I, I guess I would say two things. One is just the, it, it's fascinating and, and, and disturbing the, the, the speed with which these things circulate, um, particularly in the case, the case of this euthanasia claim. You can just see it kind of explode out from when McCoy originally puts it out there um, and becomes very well known and, 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 you know, among the public within a very short period of time as a result. Um, and because, you know, the findings of my other article suggest, you know, once it's out there, it's just very hard to correct. The second thing is, is, is I show in the article um, just what makes a misperception a misperception. And what I mean by that is the people who hold these beliefs, in the case of both the Clinton misperception and the death panel one, um, actually were more likely to think that they knew about the plan. So for Republicans, in this case, the opposition party, Republicans who believed they knew more about Clinton's plan or Obama's plan were actually more likely to hold the misperception. So they thought they knew more, they actually knew less. Mm. Now, let's reiterate, though, that you are saying that these are both truly myths, they're both demonstrably untrue, simply by looking at the documents in question, you can see that there were no death panel provisions, and in the case of the uh, Clinton plan, 
there certainly were no provisions that said patients couldn't go outside of uh, government-mandated uh, doctors. That's right. And, and you, you can have a real debate about the extent to which the Clinton plan would have limited choice or the extent to which Obama's plan may bring on rationing in the future. But that's, that's not the claim that was being made, and that's not the belief that was out there in, in most cases. And, and you've suggested um, in places like, say, the New York Times, where you wrote an op-ed uh, back in March, that those um, people who were in favor of health care reform and believe that the myths will generally um, disappear when people start to see how it really works, you've suggested that, oh, no, that's not the way we work. In fact, it's very possible that all the real-life experience that, that uh, contradicts the, uh, you know, the assumptions and the myths will, will not really dispel them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. These, these, these myths can stick around for years. Um, and, you know, I, I wish I believed that direct contact with the realities of, of, of Obama's plan for better or for worse will dispel the false beliefs people have. But, you know, you know the, the argument I was making in the piece is simply that, um, you know, we shouldn't expect these things to go away. And, you know, we talked about weapons of mass destruction earlier. And, again, despite a, a near-complete lack of evidence um, that those weapons existed immediately before the U.S. invasion, you know, that belief uh, persisted for, for, for years after the invasion. Um, so, you know, these things, these things have legs. Do certain kinds of um, notions have um, better legs than others? I mean, is there something in common about these kinds of myths? I'm noting that they're all scary, or most of them are scary. Uh, there were weapons of mass destruction. They're going to, you know, this new health care reform is literally going to kill old people. Um, if they play to fear, do we seize on them more strongly? It seems like it. Um, I, it definitely seems that... Um you know the, the 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 opposition really does have those those evil motives that you you feared and that they they really are out to get you. Those sorts of myths do uh, persist. So so an example from the liberal side is um, a pretty a pretty disturbing number of people said in in, in a poll that you know they believe that you know Bush administration uh, you know officials were complicit in the 9/11 terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. Right. So. You know, again, there's this idea of duplicity and, and evil motives um, and, and being out to, to get people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, the, the fear factor, if you want to call it that, is, is a big part of this. And, and a number of these are, are, are really, um, they're rather extreme visions of the world in which hidden forces are at work, you know, that the, 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 the U.S. presidential administration could conspire in, uh, you know, a gigantic terrorist attack on American soil, um, they have a quality of, like, just so crazy it might be true, you know, and also very hard to disprove. I mean, you know, it's hard to prove a negative. That's right. That's right. So so, so another example um, is the idea that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country. Yeah, the birther idea. The birther idea. And that idea, you know, despite all sorts of evidence that's been that's been generated in response to that myth, um, you know, ultimately, short of, you know, a videotape from the moment in which he was born, it's not clear what, what would satisfy <laughs> people. I mean, there were birth announcements published in the newspaper contemporaneously with when he was born. Now, unless someone went back in a time machine and <laughs> had those published, um, I mean, you have to believe in, in, in a vast and overarching conspiracy that is, that is almost, uh, you know, scientifically impossible. You use, as we said before, the word depressing, and I, I fully share your sentiment. Um, 
if the implications of these studies are followed to their 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 logical conclusion, it is very scary and upsetting. Let me offer some you know a bit of uh, conjecture that might sort of soften the blow. What if um people, as they often do in heated arguments with each other, are just trying to score points by saying things that are they know in their heart of hearts are exaggerated? You know, uh, hear a drunken conversation between a right winger and a left winger, and they'll make all kinds of wild claims, which in soberer moments, they sort of know are unfounded, but it's a kind of rhetoric that they're they're participating in. Is it possible that just ordinary folks who are sounded out by these studies and by polls are doing the same thing, and that they don't really, really believe them in the same way that they believe that the Earth is round, or at least hopefully believe that the Earth is round? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to see the polling on the, the round earth, but um, <laughs> I, I guess what I would say is it, it is possible. Uh, you know, I was just reading a paper in which some researchers actually paid people for correct answers, and they found that partisans sometimes moved in the correct direction when they, were, when they had an additional accuracy incentive. Um, now, whether that means they know the correct answer or that they're trying to counteract what they realize is their own bias isn't clear, um, but some people may, may, you know, know better, I guess. Uh, and certainly a lot of elites probably know better who are parroting these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of people who don't. And I guess that's the, that's the thing I come back to is that many other people are being, um, you know, treated like rubes and, and lied to and misled in all sorts of ways. And, um, and, and that's probably the biggest problem. Well, well certainly among the, the most deeply disturbing um, suggestions in, in your research is that not only don't factual corrections, presumably coming from a trustworthy source, not only don't those corrections adjust perceptions, right? People simply uh, refuse to see that, that they might have been wrong. But you say that it could go further and actually cause them to retrench, you know, to actually have a, you know, attach themselves more firmly to, to, the, to the wrong impression, to the wrong idea. And that's just like, what does that say to us? What can we do? Well, you know, that's, that's part of what I've been working on um, more recently is, is thinking about ideas for, that, about things that might work. Um, you know, so, so, you know, we're interested in looking at what sorts of sources might be more convincing to people, right? So there's an idea out there that if someone on your side says this isn't true, then maybe that's more believable, right? So if Bush had come and, and flat out over and over said there were no weapons of mass destruction, would that have been more persuasive? Um, I got an example for you, and I, I, I have the intuition, which may be totally wrong, that this really does make a difference. When Bill O'Reilly denounced the birther idea, I suspect it had an impact, far more than, say, a, a Democrat. Right. It's, it's, more, it's more credible, I think, to people who, are, who, who might distrust the Democrat who says it's not true, or even the reporter who says it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one idea. Um, you know, we've looked into the kind of psychological state of mind that might allow people to to deal with these things more dispassionately. We have some research looking at that. Um, But I I guess, you know, the the direction that I've been going in my own thinking is is that, you know, these things are just really hard. You know, once the cat is out of the bag, um, it's very difficult to to control the misperception and to roll it back. So um, what what, what I focus on instead in that article you mentioned about healthcare reform is that pressure at the elite level is going to matter a lot, too. So the elites who are promoting these, mis- these misperceptions and the media outlets that are giving them the airtime and the print um, to put them out there, um, 
need to be targeted and shamed in a very direct way. And it's probably easier to change the incentives for those people and for those sources than it is to convince half the American public that something they believe is wrong. Well, you advocate uh, this this idea of pointing out factual errors and actually um, holding people to account for propagating them. Uh, naming and shaming is the shorthand term for that. Right. What's the evidence that that works? Um, limited. <laughs> but we haven't really tried. Uh-huh. But I think we do see that you know, these people are quite sensitive to, uh, you know, if you're a pundit, your business is to get on TV. And if it becomes harder for you to get on TV or get your articles published, that's a direct threat to your livelihood. Um, you know, we, we certainly see politicians are very responsive to threats to their, you know, to their, uh, you know, elected offices. And, and I don't see any reason why, uh, you know, other people wouldn't behave in a similar way. So, you know, change the incentives, change the behavior. You know, that's the, that's the idea. And, uh, it's, it's not proven, but it, it's the best I've got at this point. A number of organizations um, have attempted to do fact checks. There's factcheck.org. I think many major media organizations, I think the Washington Post, for instance, I can't remember what the column was called, where they would score politicians' claims on a truth scale. You know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. What did they call that? Do you remember? I think the Washington Post one was called Fact Checker. There's also PolitiFact. They had a Pinocchio scale of of untruth, right? That sounds right. You like get four Pinocchios or something. (laughs) (laughs) So, so a lot of that has been tried. And again, mockery, uh, naming and shaming, and of course the the efforts of people like John Stewart, The Daily Show, which is nominally a comedy show, is really uh, largely about. inspecting various kinds of political claims and, 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 and finding the contradictions in them, usually by finding old videotape that uh, shows people to be speaking out of both sides of their mouths, you know? Right. <laughs> but the question is, does it work? And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded the person you named earlier who um, has been widely blamed for propagating the, the biggest myths that, in one case, doomed uh, the Clinton attempt at, at health care reform and um, certainly helped uh, slow down the, the Obama attempt, that's Betsy um, McCoy, mm-hmm. that's how it's pronounced, mm-hmm. former lieutenant governor of New York, anti-health reform advocate. Um, and she went on The Daily Show in a very famous performance. I'm sure you saw it. Mm-hmm. I did. She faced off with Jon Stewart uh, with her you know, copy, this huge binder of um, what she said was part of the health care bill at that time back in August, I think. And there was a sense that this would be high noon, you know, that they would pull out the page and and proof would be shown to the American people. But what actually happened was really weird. Well, she just stalled and obfuscated and said, it's on page 2,432. She eventually found the page. John Stewart pulled it out, read it, and said, it doesn't say that. And she said, yes, it does. And he said, no, it doesn't. She (laughs) she smiled, you know, know, and and, and nothing got resolved, you know. I mean, the idea that it would be... um, a showdown uh, with a conclusive ending was wrong in a way. Right, and, and depending on your prior beliefs, you probably have a very different interpretation of what happened in that exchange. Well, um, you know, you have been a student of spin for a long time. Um, you even authored, was your blog called Spin Sanity for a while? It was. So you've, you watch spin all the well, time. And I, I, I should be fair, it wasn't my blog. It was a, it was a collaboration with two other people, so my blog is a, is a separate entity. Oh, okay, okay. But you were one of the co-authors of this running column called Spin Sanity. That's right. Yeah. And so you're a student of spin, and, and Betsy McCauley was an interesting case there where her, her style was to smile at the audience, be really, really nice, and just say, you're wrong, uh, and not get really ruffled, and, and not really... Um, 
focus on the material at hand to the degree that anything could be concluded. You know, in a very cynical way, was that a good strategy? Yeah, no, she handled it perfectly. Everyone, uh, you know, has hyped up John Stewart's interviews as some sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, death panel for spin, if you want to call it that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you if you stall an obfuscate on live TV with the clock ticking, uh, it's very hard to score that, that that devastating blow. And and you know, if you aren't going to, you know, if you can't agree on what the facts are, which they couldn't, then it's very hard for the viewer to tell who's right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They'd have to go to the document themselves, and even then they might not be able to figure it out. That's right. That's right. It turned on a very technical dispute, um, which I'm, I'm looking here right now. And In factcheck.org uh, suggests that, that, that McCoy's uh, interpretation of the bill was misleading. But again, you know, how many people... Uh, of the audience for that show actually went and looked this up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm imagining those who uh, were predisposed to like John Stewart and trust him trusted him, and those who were already on her side trusted her, and nothing, nothing changed. Most likely. Yeah. Again, I'm depressed. Um, has, has it gotten worse over the years? Was there a golden age when we Americans, let's say, uh, looked to the facts and were willing to change our minds based on them um, and maybe helped along by the... The, the, the parental media, Walter Cronkite and company, you know, pointing out who's right and who's wrong, or is, is that all a, a pipe dream? I think there's a, there's a, a tremendous amount of nostalgia for, for, you know, a sort of era of civic debate that um, didn't exist in the way that people describe. So I don't, I don't um, subscribe to that sort of a view. I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, this is a, a human uh, tendency to, to uh, you know, have a bias towards our pre-existing beliefs. Um, the, you know, some things have changed, though, right? So the political system has become more polarized um, at the elite level, and the uh, you know the public isn't as much more polarized, I think, as people think. But we are much more sorted out, so that conservatives are Republicans and liberals are Democrats in a way that wasn't as true 50 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and that certainly may exacerbate some of these tendencies. Um, the other thing that's happened is that, you know, the media environment has changed. And what that means is these things can get out there faster um, and they can be filtered into outlets that cater to certain points of view in a way that, that wasn't uh, as possible before. So the technology of the media now makes it so that you can go to a website where you can be assured with some reasonable degree of confidence that, Firstly, everything you read will make you feel better about your beliefs. <laughs> um, and, you know, people don't just look at websites like that, but it's certainly easy to, to consume a lot more of your information from um, sites like that. And, and, and then, uh, you know, as people do that, you know, maybe there's more of a tendency to start believing in these sorts of, uh, you know, misperceptions. Well, tell me if you, you've uh, studied this or have some thoughts on this notion. You think maybe a partial solution is naming and shaming? of people who willfully spread false information, you know, politicians and the like. Uh, But that actually depends on their ability to be shamed. And if they're shameless, if they have an infinite ability to say whatever they want to say with a straight face, um, maybe that strategy fails. And and I have this idea that maybe shamelessness is on the rise, uh, or am I just making that up? Well, it, I, I, it depends what their incentives are. I, I, I do think there are some people where being extreme isn't damaging to them. It's helpful. Um, you know, you if if you're Michelle Bachman or I don't know someone like maybe Cynthia McKinney, um, 
you may actually become more famous on the fringe as you say more extreme things and raise more money and have a larger future platform as a pundit and all these things if you um, if you say wild and outlandish things. So for those people, the incentives are backwards, and those people are going to be very hard to shame in the way that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Although even still, if they can't get act, if the media starts to exercise more discretion in who it gives the megaphone to, then you know maybe that would change. But they're certainly harder to to, to um, you know to to influence. But um, even still, I think there's a wide range of people for whom um, this is kind of a part-time job. And, and, and it's those people, I think, who are going to respond to the incentives um, more significantly. And, you know, so in terms of it, is it, is it getting, or, you know, are there more people who are shameless, I guess I would say, you know, on these fringes, right, again, you know, these people um, can speak to their like-minded uh, folks out there in a much more direct way than, than was ever possible before, right? So if you, you can reach your audience that thinks that the, NAFTA is building a superhighway through the United States, right? And there are people who think that or, you know, think that Obama, um, you know, wasn't born in this country or think that 9-11 was a conspiracy. You can connect with those people in a very deep way, sell them things, get them to come to your website and come to your speeches and all those things. So in in that sense, um, you know, maybe those people are more shameless than ever. Um, We've been speaking about information as though it is cut and dried, that you know, as though there is a truth to be found, that facts uh, can be identified, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that there is some objective truth that <laughs> can ultimately be decided on. But, you know, in so much in politics, it, it is hard to separate uh, f- fact and data, you know, truth and falsehood from, from belief and, and, um, and uh, uh, predisposition, you know. I mean... In some of these cases, are these really facts at all? Is is it really a question of truth and, and uh, what's true and what's false? I mean, some, sometimes no. And and there are a lot of things that people say are true or untrue or are myths or are facts that I stay far away from uh-huh. in my research and on Spinsanity and on my blog. And the reason is that they're, they depend on your perspective. And you'll read lots of so-called fact-checking that I, that I tend to think is not uh, fact checking at all, so I, I, you know, I try to be very careful to to focus on things where something is either definitively untrue or really, in a in a strong sense, is is absolutely unsupported by the best available evidence and expert opinion, mm-hmm. um, and try to draw that line. Now, there's a room full of books at the university library here about what is reality and what is truth, and you can get bogged down in that philosophical debate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but there doesn't have to be one single truth. For us to say these things are are, are really unsupported or, or or you know directly disproven by by this piece of information, and I think we can draw some of those lines in some cases, if not in every case. Um, you uh, are a political scientist, but you you were once in politics long ago, mm-hmm. uh, about ten years ago. Yes. Yes. You were deputy communications director uh, for a senatorial candidate in Nevada. That's right, Ed Bernstein, who ran against John Ensign. Uh, so you were there. You were part of the um, messaging, you know, and all of that. I was. I was. And you could you could think of the rest of my career as an attempt to make up for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I was. And I guess what I would say is the interesting part of that experience was that my uh, candidate, for whatever his flaws, because he was a trial lawyer, was perceived as dishonest. So actually our campaign was um, – 
under a tremendous amount of pressure to be quite accurate and strict um, because of, of that reputation. So I'm actually not, um, you know, as in, I'm not embarrassed about that the content of that campaign in a way that I might have been if I had worked for someone else. Um, and, and, you know, the, my interest in fact-checking came out of that campaign, particularly the, the, the way that um, the Gore-Bush presidential campaign, which was going on at the time, was covered. Mm. Um, and, you know, after that campaign, I left politics and started this website, Spinsanity, with, with two of my friends and tried to kind of model how we thought the, the press should fact-check politicians um, in, a, in a better way. And, and I think I've hopefully been able to contribute more <laughs> than working as a working as a flack or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 you, if 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 anyone was going to say you had a bias, they'd probably say liberal, left leaning. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I mean, I work for a Democratic campaign. I mean, you know, I I try to you know I disclose what I've done, you know, and people can judge for themselves. But you know, Spin Sandy was very consciously a nonpartisan website and, and had many. Um, you know, conservative uh, fans and many liberal, uh, many of our liberal targets didn't like us very much. So and you, you can go read all the things Michael Moore said about us and, you know, people <laughs> like that. Um, and and you, you, you worked for a time for the American Prospect, a, a self-professed liberal publication. You got into trouble there for being too critical of some liberal um, experts and pundits, yeah? Yeah, well, they, they hired me as a guest blogger and I assumed they knew what they were getting. Uh, but apparently not, because when I started criticizing liberals, they uh, expressed their dissatisfaction, and we agreed that this uh, that the arrangement could not continue. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was it was fascinating because you know they're under a tremendous amount of pressure to toe the party line. You know, the market pressure for um, you know, I mean that that magazine had a has a pretty kind of wonky bent, um, and, and and you know. But in the, in the kind of new environment when they're competing with very doctrinaire websites for readers, you know, they, they're under a lot of pressure not to antagonize those people by saying mean things about liberals. So how do you police your own leanings, your own biases? I do my best. I do my best. You know, the, the lesson of my research is that <laughs> none of us are very good at it, but I, I do my best. And, you know, I, I try to talk to all different sorts of people and get feedback on what I'm doing and I have lots of readers of my blog who are conservative who who push back on me if they think I'm being unfair, and I try to I try to listen, you know, and and just do my best. And you know, I am really committed to the scientific ideal, um, and and I try to do my political science and my blogging, you know, in that spirit. Brendan Nyhan is currently a Robert Wood Johnson Scholar in Health Policy Research at the University of Michigan. He's the co-author of All the Presidents Spin. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Next, more on perceptions versus reality. A lot of people predicted the Great Recession would narrow the gulf between rich and poor in this country. Well, think again. Okay, time for part two of today's show. Last year about this time, as you may remember... We were in the thick of something called the economic meltdown. And one of the people I talked to about it on this show was Robert Frank. He writes the Wealth Report for the Wall Street Journal about the world of the very rich in America, or as he calls it, Richistan. And I asked him how Richistanis were reacting to the economic crisis. A lot of the wealthy have lost trust in everything right now to the point where most of them are putting their money in gold. And I don't mean gold futures, I mean gold bars and gold coins. 
they are going to what I call the Armageddon trade, where they're going to the last store of value, the most trusted store of value over history, which is gold. And they're buying gold bars and coins, putting them in safes under their homes. That's how paranoid they are about confidence evaporating and what happens when a faith-based country like Richistan starts to collapse. You actually know people who are taking the um, Scrooge McDuck road uh, and have vaults under their homes? You know, I haven't talked to many millionaires or billionaires who are not buying gold and and putting them in vaults under their home. (laughs) Oh, no. That's amazing. And and if they're not doing that, they're they're buying thousands of acres of land in places like New Zealand or Argentina as a place where they can go for a safe house someday. I mean, these, these are people who really think the end of the world is nigh. And in some ways, the rich are the most paranoid because they see this more dramatically than the rest of us. That is really uh, I'm 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 shocked. I, I would have thought that if I was wealthy, that I would uh, not be too concerned because I'm not going to wind up in a homeless shelter somewhere. I mean, at worst, I'm going to have to get rid of a few yachts and so on. But my new slogan for what the wealthy are doing <laughs> with their cash is guns, gold, and farms. That's that's what they're buying with their cash. Well, things have obviously settled down since then. We're now in a recovery. How robust or lasting, time will only tell. But I wanted to get back in touch with Robert Frank to see how all the upheaval has affected wealth in this country. You know, the last time you and I talked, it was a year ago, it was the spring of 2009, and there was a sense uh, in our conversation that we were um, looking into the abyss economically. Right. And uh, none had farther to fall than, than your subjects, the wealthy. That's right. And part of it was looking at history when, if you looked at the past few recessions and even back to the Great Depression, the wealthy relative to the rest of the population always took the largest percentile hit on their wealth and then also took longer to recover because, you know, the, the wealthy are sort of what I call the bipolars of our economy. When the economy is doing well, they do the best. When the economy is doing poorly, they do the worst. So uh, everyone really about a year ago was looking for the most spectacular crash among the high-flying wealthy that we had seen since the Great Depression. Well, uh, among the, uh, the symptoms of a kind of hysteria that was setting in, I mean, maybe it's okay to say hysteria in retrospect, uh, mm-hmm. last year you told me about this phenomenon where a lot of the rich folks you write about were, were sort of liquidating their conventional investments, you know, their securities and investments in real estate, and moving into that uh, investment of last resort, um, gold, which they were actually burying in, in vaults under their houses in some cases? That's right. That's right. So what happened a year ago was that the wealthy really wanted cash, and they wanted things that you could hold on to that no one could take away, and that were, were, were hard, tangible assets. So they were buying gold. Some of them were buying guns, and some of them were buying farmland. The most basic, simple, lasting investments, uh, again, that would sort of protect them. I, I called it the end of the world trade because the wealthy really felt like the world was falling apart and um, it was all going to come crashing down. And so they wanted to buy the most stable, long-term investments possible. So um, here we are a year later. and Tell me what a difference a, a year makes in what you're seeing. <clears throat> well, gone completely 180 degrees for the wealthy. A year ago, they were many of them were expecting that 
you know, they were going to lose almost all their fortunes, and most of them would lose at least half their fortunes. A year later, we're looking at losses somewhere in the order of 10 to 20% for the wealthy, which when you're worth 10 or $20 million and now you're down 2 or $3 million, it's not a very big hit. What really happened was the stock market came back. And that may not sound like much, but there's a very important statistic to keep in mind when you're looking at the wealthy compared to the rest of the country. Most of the country, 90% of Americans, half of the, most of their wealth is tied up in their house. So for 90, 90% of Americans, the housing market is really their measure of wealth. For millionaires, housing only accounts for 20% or less of their net worth. The stock market, however, and financial investments account for more than half. So when you look at the wealth of America, you have to look at housing, which has not recovered. When you look at the wealthy, you have to think about financial markets. They have recovered. So the number of millionaires uh, grew double digits last year, one of the strongest growth years we've seen in decades. The luxury goods sector is back. People are buying you know, Mercedes and BMWs. They're buying expensive handbags and designer clothes. If you look at um, you know, travel, high-end travel, some of the high-end home markets have started to recover slowly. So the wealthy have recovered their money, and they're also recovered their appetite for spending. So those folks who, who moved their money out of um, stocks and, and similar things last year, put it into gold, yep. buried the gold, actually uh, cashed in the gold and got back in the stock market at just the right time and took advantage of this huge rise in, in in the stock market over the last year? Some of them did, and some of them are keeping the gold. There, there's, there are these memory tracers with the wealthy that they will never be able to get rid of where they still want that safety net of hard assets in case things go wrong again. So what happened is many of them may have taken money out of the stock market or hedge funds or private equity firms back a year ago and put it into these hard assets. What they're doing now is moving some cash back into the market, uh, a lot of it overseas, a lot of it in municipal bonds, into very safe investments. They're not really going back into hedge funds. They're not going back into derivatives, things they don't understand. But a lot of them are keeping that gold, or at least some of it, as a backstop because they know that this could happen again. And we're seeing Greece and some other sovereign, sovereign debt defaults overseas uh, you know, the wealthy are still much more conservative than they were prior to the crisis. Mm. But you say they are spending again on, on luxuries, uh, what uh, I think you or someone else call the, the gluttonomy, the, the economy that depends on extravagance. <laughs> That's right, the, the, the gluttonomy and the, the gluttonous spending of the wealthy that we saw in 2006, 2007 at the peak of this second Gilded Age. Many people say that even though the wealthy have money again and they're, they're dipping their toes back into the market, we're not going to see that kind of irrational, totally over-the-top bling craze that we saw prior to this crisis. But, you know, my view is when, when the rich have money, they tend to spend it. And for once in a couple of years, they are starting to have money again. So I think we, we, still, we will see a return to some of the luxury goods. Although if you look at the boat market, the private jet market, and um, some of the very super high-end real estate markets, those markets are still have a lot of inventory and have not yet recovered. In addition to, to the wealthy bouncing back, you say there are a lot of uh, newly minted millionaires who came out of this 
this uh, catastrophe better off? Well, some of them are newly minted. You know, we all know the names of uh, John Paulson and some of the financial types who swung in and, and bought a lot of these distressed assets and stocks and actually made money. But the vast majority of that growth, I think it was somewhere between 16 and 19 percent growth in millionaires last year. Most of that growth were people who were millionaires before the crisis during the crisis dropped out of that millionaire category and now are back. And it was simply because the value of their stocks pushed them out of the millionaire category just for a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were briefly non-millionaires and now they're back. And so I would say the majority of those folks are are returning millionaires as opposed to newcomers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is this another chapter in American history where the the rich do well um, despite everybody else doing badly? I think it's it's not just another chapter, it's possibly a new and somewhat troubling book in American history because what's happened is the wealthy have in fact gotten wealthier as a result of this crisis, um, many of them, and, and they certainly haven't suffered. But because this was a at heart a housing crisis and most of America has their wealth, wealth and housing, and the wealthy rely on financial markets, which largely benefited from a government bailout. What we're seeing is that rather than shrinking inequality, which is what most recessions do, this recession has actually increased inequality. It has widened the gap between the wealthy and everyone else. So what's going to happen is rather than starting out a post-recession growth period of, of compressed between the wealthy and, and the non-wealthy, we're going to start out this next growth phase with an even wider gap. And we all know from the past 20 years when there's economic growth, the wealthy have tended to benefit much more than the rest of America. So we could see the largest growth in inequality in the next few years that we have ever seen. It could make the period before the Great Depression look minor in comparison. So th- this, this recession has had a dramatic effect on the gap between the wealthy and the rest of America. Um, it's going to take a while to digest that fact, and especially under um, an administration, I mean, we're not blaming this on the Obama administration, but an administration that some on the right had feared would, would uh, take from the rich and give to the poor, redistribute the wealth. You're saying that the wealth gap has actually increased. That's right. And there's, there's new data out just in the past uh, week or so that really takes a look at, at what, what's happened. And they have found that inequality has increased. And many economists and writers, including myself, thought that this crisis would shrink inequality. And it hasn't. Relative to the Obama administration and Congress, what's interesting is that they have been trying to enact financial regulations. They've been trying to hold back CEO salaries. They've been trying to raise taxes on the wealthy to try to even out this widening gap. And so far, they've been unsuccessful, largely because of the wealthy and their lobbyists in Washington and many people in Congress have argued that right now, as the economy is still struggling, you cannot tax the wealthy. They're the ones that create jobs. They're the ones that spend, so do not tax them. Uh, and that might have been true a year ago, but it's getting harder and harder for anyone to argue that taxing the wealthy right now would be unfair. Governments and states and federal government need money. Right now, the wealthy have more than, more than the rest of the country, and it's going to be harder for them to argue that the wealthy cannot bear those added costs. 
So I think you're going to see a change in Washington where there will be greater taxation on the wealthy, there will be greater regulations, and there's going to be a call by the rest of America for the wealthy to do their what they would consider their fair share, given that they've come out of this recession much better than the rest of the country. For those people, those populist factions who are angry that the bailout happened uh, at mm-hmm. taxpayer expense and that apparently the biggest beneficiaries are the wealthy or among the biggest beneficiaries, um, one would think that then the, the argument could be made that increasing marginal tax rates on the wealthy is a way of recovering that taxpayer money. Um, does that make any sense to you? That's an interesting argument. I think that's going to be made, and I think that that is a, a valid argument. I think the other side would say, look, you know, most of the millionaires in this country, 85% of them made their money themselves. They worked hard. They used, most of them built a business and sold it and then invested that money back into the economy. And they would argue that, you know, the government had to come and bail out capital markets because without that, you wouldn't have any lending, any job creation. Money would just stop flowing in this country. And therefore, um, you know, at a time when the wealthy are finally getting back on their feet and starting to get confident again, um, they would argue, rather than spreading the wealth, uh, that, that we should let this recovery take hold and let the wealthy um, you know, create jobs and invest in new companies. But I think your point is, is very well taken, and I think that's going to be the argument. Look, were it not for the taxpayers, the wealthy would not have recovered, and therefore it's time to give back. And I think we're going to see more and more of that argument. We see Bill Gates' father in Washington crusading for a higher tax on the wealthy. We've seen uh, a, a petition signed by hundreds of multimillionaires saying, raise our taxes. So there's a growing contingent of millionaires themselves who are saying, look, this needs to change. We need to do more because the country is in such dire straits that people with money have to do more. So I think we're going to see more of that. You know, in addition to uh, what now seems to have been exaggerated panic and overreaction on the part of the rich last year to what uh, they thought might be, you know, a complete collapse of uh, of the financial system and uh, of traditional investments, you know, and that retreat to gold and other other kinds of uh, Armageddon assets, I think you called them back then. Uh, right. There was also this huge outburst, um, along with fear, of rectitude that was cropping up everywhere. Everyone was outraged at the, the uh, bad practices of the financial world, the banking system, all the fraud that was surfacing, you know, uh, from Bernie Madoff to, to many others. Um, do you see uh, that any of that was more than just uh, a temporary reaction, and that we will not um, that we will not fall back into our old habits <laughs> very quickly with that sort of amnesia that often takes over when times get good again? Well, I think it's up to the regulators and it's up to Washington D.C. It's taken them a long time to finally deal with financial regulation, uh, which they're finally starting to deal with now. It depends on you know how they're going to monitor the banks and how they're going to protect consumers and investors from things like Bernie Madoff. Had there been a strong SEC and Consumer Protection Agency for investors like they're talking about now, maybe Madoff would not have happened. But what's interesting, when you talk to the wealthy, when you talk to multimillionaires right now, they are just as outraged, perhaps even more outraged, 
at Goldman Sachs and Wall Street um, than the average American. And what's interesting is that, you know, we have typically think of class wars as the poor versus the rich, but I think that the most bitter class war is between the semi-rich and the super-rich, where the semi-rich are educated they they are you know well versed in what happens on Wall Street, and they are extremely angry. And even people on Wall Street are extremely angry uh, because th- they feel like there are other people on Wall Street who've ruined their reputation. So you know you would think that maybe the wealthy feel persecuted or targeted, um, and maybe even feel some guilt about all this. But in fact, they they feel anger perhaps on a greater scale than the rest of America because they feel like they took a financial hit because of the wrongdoing on Washington, the reckless behavior. And even people on Wall Street feel like they took a hit because of the reckless behavior of some people in their own firms. And so, you know, when you look at the blame game and, and the, the what you would think would be the guilt on the part of the wealthy for coming out of this fairly well, they're very angry. And I think it's going to take a while for that anger uh, to dissipate. Um, this battle you're talking about, uh, this animosity between the super rich and the moderately rich, um, right. aside from playing out politically, which I assume it is in, in the push for financial reform and all of that right now, is it playing out socially? Are you seeing manifestations of this? Are there fights in country club locker rooms breaking out or anything like that? Well, I, I think that uh, our country still remains very clearly stratified when it comes to social uh, settings. So you tend to have super wealthy socializing with other super wealthy, uh, uh. and very few occasions. You know, if you're if you're super wealthy and you're golfing in Augusta, um, chances are you know the other people in Augusta are going to be super wealthy to get in that club as well. And you know, people tend to live in in neighborhoods that have similar wealth levels. So you, you don't really see it on a social level, but but you do. You hear it around the dinner table. You hear it at parties. Um, you hear it at social functions where people will say, you know, I, I've been at some fundraisers, black tie fundraisers, with some very wealthy people who are angry at what they call the rich people who got greedy and just took for themselves, forget the rest of the country. And that that was surprising to me because, again, you know, people would look at them and say, well, you know, isn't it partly your fault? So you don't see it directly uh, but but you do hear it a lot uh, again around dinner tables where the the mere millionaires or people worth 10 million or more very angry at those worth hundreds of millions and part of that is because the hundreds of millions of uh, the hundreds of millions wealthy people and even the billionaires they really were able to profit from this recession because they had capital when assets were cheap. They've been able to go and, and buy up Citigroup stock when it was trading down near $2. They were able to buy up uh, some of these distressed mortgages and now cash them in with government support. Politically, that suggests to me that um, some party or maybe both parties uh, should be playing to that uh, that lower echelon of the rich right now. I, I think the Tea Party has started to play that. I mean, if you look at the the demographics of the Tea Party, some studies suggest that that's a very wealthy group, or certainly um, we would call them affluent uh, members of, of the Tea Party, and they're angry at uh, the elites. And, you know, many people in this country would consider someone with a couple million dollars as being part of the elite. But the Tea Party is, is from what I gather, could be perceived as an affluent group uh, really raging at the rich and the super-rich and what they perceive as 
the, the power that they've purchased in Washington. I'm surprised to hear it, how affluent they may be. I mean, I never had that impression because it's usually really cheap tea bags are hanging on their hats. But... <laughs> well, exactly. Well, they, you know, they they they, they got to appear like every guy's. But uh, no, I mean, if, if you look at some of the some of the surveys, and again, you know, we really don't know. Um, it's hard to determine people's net worth, and a group like that, uh, it's even harder. But uh, if you look at some of the demographics and studies of that group, it does show that it's. It's not, you know, hard-bitten, uh, out-of-work farmers, and it's it's not the the Rust Belt castoffs that are now looking for work. It's it's retired uh, former, you know, executives and um, you know some some well-off housewives and that sort of thing. Um, now that could all be wrong, and and maybe it is a real blue-collar group. Um, but but when you look at the Republicans, I think that they, they have um, really been on the defensive about this because I think they they do tend to see themselves as the party of the sort of lesser millionaires and the merely affluent. Let's lower our taxes. Mm-hmm. Let's shrink government. Um, let's not spread the wealth. And I think they've been slow to really to catch on to this. Uh, Intermillionaire warfare that we're seeing, um, and and perhaps if they did, they would have more traction. And the and the Democrats have really taken it on to be the populists um, in this country. Their problem, of course, is that they're they appear to be for more government spending, which is uh, a problem for people with a few million dollars for whom taxes is really the top issue. Intermillionaire warfare, but no blood-soaked putting greens as yet. <laughs> Not yet, but man, this could be next year. You know, I mean, uh, who knows? They could they could start digging out their gold bars and hitting each other with them. So we'll see. <laughs> Last question for you, Robert. You've been very patient. Um, you you uh, having taken on this job of, of blogging and reporting on the world of the wealthy since um, what two thousand two thousand four yeah two thousand four. Yeah. I mean, this has been a real study in psychology and in, um, in sociology. What have you learned in the last year? Well, I've learned that the wealthy in this country uh, are much more anxious than I expected, and that wealth would appear to bring us stability. It would appear to give us peace of mind. It would appear to give us all the joys in life that we now can't have. But what this crisis has taught us and what I learned even before this crisis is that wealth today in such an unstable, fast-changing world does not bring you peace of mind. In fact, it just makes your your life filled with more complexity and possible problems. And that the wealthy today feel that wealth no longer brings stability to your life. It no longer brings that sense that uh, I'm protected from the vagaries of of the world. And so I think that all of us, um, you know, would do better to not place so much value on what wealth can do to improve our lives or happiness um, and and really just focus on things that uh, are lasting and that are important in our own lives. And I think it's also taught me that this country's attitude toward the wealthy has changed quite a bit. When I first started covering the wealthy, there was endless interest in what the wealthy were doing, who they were, how they got there, what they were buying, how much everything they bought cost. And now there's this sort of seething cynicism slash indifference on the part of the American public about the wealthy. And, you know, we've always been a country defined by our, our aspiration and our admiration of the wealthy. For mm-hmm. Ever since Tocqueville came here and started looking around and saw that that aspiration to wealth was one of America's 
core characteristics. Now that may be changing. The, wealth, the wealthy are not as well viewed by the American public as they used to be. And I'm curious where that leads, both in a political sense and in a cultural sense. Um, and I, I think that's a, a relatively new phenomenon that we haven't seen in about 100 years. Mm-hmm. So your beat stays very interesting, and I look forward to reading more from you in the future. Thank you. Robert Frank, he writes The Wealth Report for The Wall Street Journal, and he's the author of Richistan, A Journey Through the American Wealth Boom and the Lives of the New Rich. 